The scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 25, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimbran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir Lahai Roy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we have reached the end of our study of Abraham. And verses 1 through 11 of Genesis 25, they kind of read like an obituary, don't they? An obituary is a death notice, of course, but, but death notices do more than announce a person's death. They inevitably say something about that person's life. They always mention the family that preceded them in death and the family that remains. They often mention ways the person served the community or ways in which he or she served their church. Uh, Sometimes the personality of the person who died comes through as you read about fun things that he or she would do with uh, family or friends. What you never read in in an obituary is something along the lines of this. Mr. Smith made a lot of money and bought a lot of things and died surrounded by his investment manager, personal accountant, and lawyer. You know, that, that, that would be the end of what surely must have been a very meaningless life. Our call to worship for this morning was from Psalm 90. And, you know, Psalm 90 contains that famous line, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Our fictional Mr. Smith did not number his days. He lived with all his hopes and dreams rooted in a world that's passing away. What about you? How would your obituary be written if you died today? How do you want your obituary to be written And what about Abraham? What do we learn from Abraham's obituary about the kind of life Abraham lived? Did Abraham number his days and gain a heart of wisdom? And how do we learn to do the same? We'll wrap up this morning by considering how Abraham's faith laid hold of God's promise. That's been the, the title of this series faith laying hold of God's promise. How did, how did Abraham's faith lay hold of God's promise and lead to him, for him, 
to a good end. Uh, we'll, we'll, do though, we'll do so under the following headings. Abraham's good end, Abraham's meaningful life, and Abraham's prevailing faith. Abraham's good end, meaningful life, and prevailing faith. But first, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, as we wrap up this study of, of Abraham, who through faith in Christ is our father. We are in Christ, his spiritual offspring, even as Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. Lord, help us to, be, to learn from this, to be, to be fed from your word this morning. Ultimately, help us to see as we look at Abraham, but more importantly, as we look to you and your son, Jesus Christ, what it is to live a meaningful life. By God's grace, your grace, O oh Lord, be able to exhibit prevailing faith and then enjoy to whatever degree we can in this fallen world where death remains an intruder. Oh God, would you help us to know what it is to enjoy a good end? And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look first at Abraham's good end. Take a look at verses seven and eight with me. Again, poetic, beautiful. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, <clears throat> a couple things. First of all, God had promised Abraham this kind of death. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, God told Abraham that he would go to his fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And that's, that phrase, at a good old age, is the same phrase that's found here in verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. Abraham didn't just die at an old age. He died, as Victor Hamilton says in his commentary on Genesis, in a frame of mind filled with inner shalom and satisfaction, which is the thrust of the phrase, full of days. So at a good old age, as promised by God, full of days with a sense of completeness and, and fullness to his life. The text also says that he was gathered to his people in verse 8. And, and what does that mean? That doesn't mean he was buried because the text says he was buried. It, it doesn't mean that he was buried back in Ur, his original homeland because it says that he was buried in Machpelah with his wife Sarah. So what does it mean for him to be gathered to his people? If it doesn't mean that he died, he breathed his last, if it doesn't mean that he was buried, if it doesn't mean that he was returned to his ancestral homeland prior to the promise that God had given him, what does it mean? It means that Abraham was gathered to those who had gone before him. He, he knew something of and was experiencing something of the hope of heaven. This is pointing even in Genesis 25 to the afterlife, to life beyond the grave. A reminder here in Genesis 25 that we have throughout all of Scripture that death is not the end. Death is not the end. It is the end of the beginning. For those who know Jesus as their Savior, it is the end of a beginning that is going to cross over into life in which every day is better than the day before. And for those who have rejected Christ as their Savior in this life, this life, your last breath, if that is where you are this morning, is the end of a beginning in which you experienced the best that things could ever be 
because all that remains is eternal condemnation and separation from God. Death is a defining moment in a person's life, not because it's the end, but because it is the end of the beginning. So God had promised that peaceful kind of death to Abraham. He is told that he can anticipate and was experiencing something of a reunion. Abraham experienced a good end. You might say that he died well. Now, does God promise a good end to us? And on the one hand, no. God doesn't promise like he did to Abraham that we will die at an old age and, and full of years in that, that same sense. We, we know all too tragically how death remains an intruder, how death is not the way things are supposed to be, that, that separation that exists between um, you know, body and soul at death, a separation that was never meant to happen. The separation that exists between loved ones at death, as Abraham with Sarah, so too Isaac with Abraham at Abraham's death. Death remains an intruder. And yet, as we saw in Genesis chapter 23 when we considered Sarah's death, it is still possible for a Christian, in spite of the brokenness of the world and the, and the tragedies that happen in which people die what it would seem to be far too soon. In spite of all that, it is possible for a Christian to die well. We die well when we remember that death is not the end, that it's the end of the beginning, and the best is yet to come. We die well when we die ready to meet the one that we have learned we have in fact been waiting for our entire lives, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we die well when we trust that he will see us through death's doorway into his presence. J.I. Packer wonderfully said that your death is an appointment on the Lord's calendar that he will be faithful to keep. In that sense, a Christian like Abraham can know a good end. But let's look secondly at Abraham's meaningful life. Abraham in his life experienced intimacy with God and he made an investment in the next generation. He never owned a whole lot of land, right? The field that contained the cave in which Sarah and he and those who would follow were buried. He was wealthy, but his hope was not in his wealth. He knew God, and he made an investment in the next generation. Let's take a look at that. Abraham's intimacy with God. I mean, keep in mind the fact that Abraham had wandered for 100 years. He never settled in one place. He was a sojourner. He lived in tents. Did I mention that he did that for 100 years? That's a long time. But what did he have? He knew intimacy with God. Wherever he pitched his tent, he built an altar. He worshiped the Lord. He was even known as God's friend. James, in James 2.23, says Abraham was called a friend of God. Who called Abraham a friend of God? God called Abraham a friend of God. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, 
God says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God invited Abraham into intimate fellowship with him. And in all of his sojourning, in all of his wandering, in all of his unrootedness, Abraham was rooted in his relationship with God. God invites us into that same intimacy of fellowship with him down to this very day. He calls us to worship him. To worship him. Do you realize the invitation to worship for what it really is? Worshiping God, the, the call to worship God is a call back into reality. It's a call to that which will, in fact, bring us our greatest joy. It's a call into that which we were created to do, to know God and enjoy him forever. The, the answer to the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Worshiping God is it's what we were made for. God invites us to worship him. Do you appreciate the rootedness that worship offers? Abraham was completely unrooted in the earth, but rooted in God. If you've ever had an opportunity to, to worship with either, a, you know, in a different place, a different culture, you know, we, we had that experience when we were in England. Not a vastly different culture than ours. They drink tea, not coffee. That's an issue. But other than that, you know, pretty much the same folk. And yet to be over there and worship with a church was incredible. It was, it, it just gave us this sense of, these are our brothers and sisters. They're in another land, but we, we share together this common ground in Christ. Life is brief our life on this earth is so transient. Most of us don't live in the same place for our entire lives. And yet, there is a rootedness, there is a groundedness in the midst of our transience into which we are called when we worship God. Jesus invites us into nothing less than the intimacy of friendship. He, the Lord, draws near to us. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. That's Psalm 145, 18. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And in Christ, we are called friends. John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. His friends are those for whom he laid down his life. And greater love has no one than that. There's an intimacy with with God that Abraham enjoyed, and, and we're invited in Christ to ensure, to, to, to enjoy that same intimacy. But Abraham also did everything that he could to ensure that the blessing of God would carry on to the next generation. Abraham experienced intimacy with God. That was one aspect of what made his life meaningful. The other thing is this investment that he made in the next generation. So take a look with me here in uh, verses 1 through Let's do one through six. 
Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Madan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leumin, Leumim. Now, when did he marry Keturah? Hard to know for sure. The verbs would indicate that he married her after Sarah died, although it's possible that he married Keturah before Sarah died. We also know that there was a span of 38 years between Sarah's death and Abraham's death, in, in which there was ample time to father the six sons that are mentioned here and also enjoy the grandchildren that are mentioned here. We, we don't know for sure. What's hard for us to imagine is what it must have been like to send those sons away. He sent them away with gifts. He, he clearly loved them, but he, he sent them away nonetheless. Why? Because Abraham wanted to do everything he could to ensure that the blessing of God would, would extend to the next generation that it would be on Isaac. Now, that was because God had promised that the blessing would pass through Isaac. And as we see at the end of the passage in verse 11, it was God that would have to see too the blessing of God upon Isaac. Abraham didn't bless Isaac. Abraham did everything that he could to ensure that the blessing of God would fall upon Isaac. And in that sense, he made an investment if you will, in the next generation. Let's, let's ask what that looks like for us. Because I think the principle, hopefully not the practice of sending children away, but the principle of doing everything we can to ensure that the blessing of God falls on the next generation, that principle needs to be applied by us. Every generation needs to feel a burden to do everything that they can to ensure that the blessing of God falls on the next generation. We can only do so much. God is the one who must bless, but what can we do to invest in the next generation with the prayer that the blessing of God will fall upon them? As, as parents, we can imagine what that looks like for our children. We know that we do it imperfectly. If any parent ever says, you know what, we're nailing it, or we have nailed it, pray for them. They're deluded. None of us are perfect parents. We all fall short. Again, it's God who must bring the blessing. It's God who must save our children. But we have an opportunity to do everything we, we can to ensure that God's blessing will fall upon them. So we, 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 we teach them in the home. We bring them to church. We pray with them and for them. We, we sing songs with them. All the things that we can do, as much as we can, to ensure that the blessing falls on the next generation. God must do the blessing. What kind of investment are we making in our biological children? But think about our, the possibility for spiritual children. Maybe you've not had biological children, or maybe your children are grown and gone. You are surrounded by spiritual children here. Very young, and depending on how old you are, children that are themselves pretty old. But a generation coming up behind you in which you must feel a burden to invest. I said last week, 
I'm convinced that the the greatest untapped resource in this church is not bank accounts. It's the wisdom of the older generations. Life wisdom that too often you don't think that you possess. But if you have suffered and if you've gone to Christ with your suffering, then you have wisdom. If you faced hardship and you've gone to Christ in the midst of that hardship, if you've wrestled through questions and doubt and insecurity and fear, and you've gone to Christ with that, those questions, that doubt, that insecurity and that fear, you have life wisdom. If you've never suffered a moment in your life and everything has been you know, smooth sailing, maybe there's a little bit of wisdom. But who do you want to learn from? Do you, do you want to sit at the feet of people who never had a difficult day in their life? Or do you want to spend time with people who know what it is to suffer with Christ, who know what it is to struggle with Christ, who know what it is like to hurt and experience disappointment, but to do so with Christ? Those people fill this church. And there's a generation coming up behind you that need your life wisdom. They need you to say to them, follow me as I imperfectly, desperately, hopefully follow Christ. When that happens in a church, something beautiful has taken place. You'll hear me, you're going to hear me talk about gospel culture quite a bit in the next, you know, I don't know. How many more years will I be here? We'll see. We're going to talk about gospel culture. Gospel culture happens when that kind of intergenerational, I'm going to call it friendship, happens. When we recognize that I need you just as much as you need me, and in Christ we have a common ground from which we can pour into one another and experience more more of what it means to be loved by Jesus. But if you are among an older generation, and by older I mean, you know, you're in your 20s, there's teenagers coming behind you. You're in your 30s, there's 20s. You get the idea. No matter where you are, I hope you will be asking God, God, who is it into whom you're calling me to share whatever degree of life wisdom because I have gone through hard things with you, Jesus. There's comfort that I have received from you. This is 2 Corinthians 1 comfort that I have received from you that your word commands me to take to others for their comfort. Help me, O God, to know whom you're calling me to do that with. Abraham did everything he could to ensure God's blessing on the next generation. So too must we. In fact, the same thing that makes for a good death is what makes for a meaningful life. Intimacy, with God, an investment in others. Let's finish by looking at Abraham's prevailing faith. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that Abraham died not having received much of what he was promised. In fact, the only thing that he received in full was a good death. God had promised that, and Abraham experienced that. But offspring? 
nations being birthed from him? Well, in Genesis chapter 25, we got a little picture of that with, with all these nations that were born from Keturah, these, these sons who would go away to the east. If you go read Isaiah 60, you will be encouraged to see how from these very children and the nations that would result, God would be calling people to himself. And God continues to do that from the ends of the earth today. But Abraham only got a little taste of the nation's inheritance. And we know he only got a little taste of the land inheritance. Hebrews 11.10, Abraham died looking forward to the city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.13, he died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, and here's an acknowledgement, that is central to our, our ability to, by God's grace, know faith that prevails. Having acknowledged that he was a stranger and exile on earth. Until we are ready to acknowledge this earth is ultimately not my home. In one sense it is, because the meek will inherit the earth. But at least for now, it isn't. Things of this earth are passing away. What I've been promised, I already have. I have Jesus. Until that day when Jesus comes, we do well to wait with Isaac. Look at verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir Lahai Roy. What an interesting place for Isaac to dwell. Beir Lahai Roy. That was the place where God heard Hagar and delivered her. It's the place where Isaac had actually gone to, to meditate as he waited for Rebekah. It's where Isaac will go to pray for Rebekah when Rebekah is barren. Ellen Ross, in his wonderful commentary, if you're going to buy one commentary on, on Genesis, buy this one, Creation and Blessing by Ellen Ross. Ellen Ross said this, Isaac thus dwelt in a place where prayer was effectual, where God could be found, and God blessed him. Where is that place for us? It's at the feet of Jesus. Thy mercy seat is open still. At the feet of Jesus. There the promises of God find their yes and amen. In this life we gain a family, a spiritual family to be sure, a family that is worldwide, a family to whom we will one day be gathered, a family drawn from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. One day we will be gathered to Christ on the throne. In him we will find safe passage into his presence through the doorway of death, into the fullness of the presence of God, awaiting that day when the meek will inherit the earth. The promises of God to Abraham are promises made in Christ to us. One day, we will know in full what we and what Abraham only experienced in part. May God give us grace so that through faith we too may lay hold 
of God's promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study of Abraham. We thank you for the opportunity over these, these, uh, these past many months to be in this portion of your word. We thank you for the way in which our father Abraham, our father in Christ, for the, for the life he lived and, and for the, the, the ways in which he struggled and, and suffered, the example that he set. Lord, all these things are, are, are so useful for us and so helpful. But Lord, help us as we always pray to not look to any person in scripture, but to you ultimately. As Abraham's life pointed towards you, help us, O oh Lord, to look past Abraham and over his shoulder to you that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.